Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajan Bakta. Hi, everyone. Hello. And today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Matthew Lippi, who is at UCSF Fresno and emergency medicine resident. Hi, good to be here. Today we're going to be talking about the agitated pre-hospital patient. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do! The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Okay, Matt. Well, thank you for being here with us today. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself? Of course. So I'm one of the second year residents at UCSF Fresno. I grew up uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area and then went to undergrad down in Irvine, where I was a EMT with the Newport Fire and Lifeguard Department for several years. Uh, I then took a couple years off and did some research, uh, mostly in toxicology and drug development work, and then I went to medical school out in Colorado and before coming here. Perfect. Well, thanks for being with us today. Um, go ahead. I hear you have a great case to share with us from your time being an EMT down south. Yeah. So this was uh, a case I saw when I was a lifeguard we had a patient who uh, 911 was called for for just behaving bizarrely in the community. Uh, and they were throwing objects at windows and cars and other people on the street and just yelling incoherently and uh, just being uh, pretty dangerous. So by the time I got there, police were already on scene and it was taking multiple police officers to pin this person to the ground. The patient was still yelling and struggling, uh, not following commands. Uh, the patient was eventually placed in leathers and secured to the gurney. Uh, but was still thrashing pretty uncontrollably. So my initial assessment was a heart rate of 140. I was unable to get a blood pressure. Uh, he was yelling so much that I couldn't get a respiratory rate or a pulse ox to the patient's movement. Um, and we obviously couldn't hear uh, heart sounds because he was just yelling. So what was your protocol then? Or what did you run off of? Or how did you how did that case progress? Or did you just take him in like that to the hospital? We didn't have a sedation protocol. And so um, the patient remained in leathers. And it was a fairly short transport to... Uh, the local hospital, um, where I believe they ended up sedating the patient in the ED. Great. Any questions from the team? Did that feel dangerous having somebody that was so agitated and in leather restraints, but not being able to sedate that person? Yeah, I think anyone who's experienced having one of these severely agitated patients knows that uh, these situations feel very dangerous, especially when you're in the back of a rig or in our case, in the back of a pickup truck uh, with a patient who uh, is just not cooperative and not redirectable. You're in the back of a pickup truck? Yeah. I'm so the scared he's going to fly right out. Yeah. The, the lifeguard department, we don't have ambulances. We had pickup trucks. And so we moved this patient off the beach before being transferred to an ambulance. So it shows all different EMS systems have different things. And to me, that seems a lot of close quarters for a really agitated patient. Yeah. It was, it was not an ideal situation, but I feel like these situations are rarely ideal. Let's jump into this topic and talk about it. Um, Sajin, you want to introduce us to the topic? Sure. So today we're going to be talking about aggressive behavior and severe agitation, specifically something we call agitated delirium. These patients are particularly challenging in any environment, but especially in the pre-hospital setting, as we were talking about cramped corridors, un 
unruly patients, and they can be danger to themselves and danger to the providers as well. So we're going to talk about ways to handle these cases to ensure the safety of everyone involved. So we can start by talking about how often this occurs. According to the CDC, about 44 out of every 1,000 ED visits are due to a diagnosis of mental health disorder. And agitation and aggression are complications that are associated with multiple substances and also organic diseases. Most of these occur in the age group between 16 and 26 years, but 80% of institutionalized dementia patients have also been found to exhibit agitation and aggression. And these patients can be particularly challenging because we don't want to over-sedate these patients or give them too many medications, but we also want to keep the scene and the patients and providers as safe as possible. Additionally, patients with developmental disabilities or underlying mental health problems and or stimulant drug use are also predisposed to aggressive or agitated behavior that can be difficult to control. So in the Fresno area, which is where we're based in Central California, a lot of our extremely agitated patients are due to um, stimulant drug use, such as methamphetamine, uh, which is a very popular drug of choice around here. Just from um, working in our emergency department here in downtown Fresno, I know that we get multiple agitated patients um, brought into us by paramedics every single day. So the stats for American Ambulance is that in 2020, the Behavioral Emergencies Protocol was used about 5,000 times. And in 2021, up until this date in September, we've used it already 5,041 times. Now for Versed use, however, in 2020, Versed was given on a Behavioral Emergency Protocol call 63 times. And in 2021, it's already been given 121 times. So it looks like Behavioral Emergencies are on the rise in 2021 in our system. Hey, Matt, why don't you go through the pathophysiology of this for us? So thinking about the pathophysiology of agitated delirium and uh, severe aggression, it's fairly complex. Uh, When you think about substance-induced agitation, um, you usually think about stimulant drugs like meth or cocaine or MDMA or PCP. um, And these affect the postsynaptic junction directly um, by flooding a release of dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine. And some of these drugs also prevent the reuptake of these neurotransmitters at the same time. Chronic use also alters the mesolimbic pathway, which causes hyperactivity and hypermetabolism and hyperthermia. Uh, The hypermetabolism requires increased oxygen, so these patients also uh, have an increased oxygen supply and demand mismatch. Uh, Oxygenation and temperature control, uh, as you can imagine, are also vitally important. Now, whether excited delirium is from a stimulant drug like Matt just explained, or whether it's from uh, uncontrolled psychiatric disease, um, really the end outcome is the same, which is that they're so hyperactive that they're getting really high fevers. And really the the high fever is kind of like the end game. That's how someone's going to die. We do talk about treatment of heat stroke a lot in episode number 10, which you guys can go back to and take a listen. But specifically when dealing with this fever from excited delirium, there was a good um, case series from 2009 where they looked at 90 patients who ended up um, dying from excited delirium. And they did a postmortem analysis of dopamine transporters and heat shock proteins. And um, the mean core body temperature among the 90 victims was 40.7 degrees Celsius. So that's really hot. 
And what they discovered was that the heat shock proteins were elevated about two to four fold in brain tissue, which confirmed that hyperthermia is an associated symptom and really an indicator of fatal autonomic dysfunction. So the reason why this is a medical emergency is because of the fevers, really. And that's what, that's the main goal, to try to calm them down so that they can cool down. Let's jump to also there was a review of several case studies, including hundreds of patients between 1980 and 2000, and they showed that all pre-hospital deaths occurred secondary either respiratory arrest or fatal cardiac dysrhythmia. The diagnoses were supported by this postmortem exam showing pulmonary and cerebral edema, and the few who lived long enough to be hospitalized often died due to disseminated intravascular coagulation. So they basically had a bleeding coagulation disorder, rhabdomyolysis where their proteins are being broken down, or renal failure. Cocaine and meth have also been shown to accelerate coronary artery disease. And so there are reports of patients with chronic use who've died from acute MIs at early as age 25. And I know we have a sympathomimetic chest pain episode. Take a look at that for more details on meth and cocaine chest pain. And one of the interesting things I think about Matt's case was that back in that time, your protocols didn't have sedation, right? It was like, okay, restrain the patient and then get them to the nearest hospital and Really, just because someone is physically restrained doesn't mean they don't have a life-threatening condition or could develop one from fighting against the restraints. So um, so nowadays, a lot of the pre-hospital protocols, I think really almost all of them in the U.S., um, include chemical restraints with physical restraints. And so that's basically medications given to calm people down. Because, again, physical restraints without chemical restraints can lead to worsening of delirium, injuries at the site of restraint, muscle or tendon injuries, rhabdomyolysis, cardiac dysrhythmias, and even death. Um, And so we are going to be talking a lot about the medications used to calm these patients down in this episode. And again, rapid assessment and treatment is critical to ensure the safety of the pre-hospital providers and patients. Sajin, why don't you kick us off with the assessment? So the assessment in these patients can be really difficult. As Matt mentioned, often you're not able to redirect these patients. You're not able to get a great history. A lot of your history is obtained from bystanders or PD before you get there. Really, the main things that we want to find out is, has this patient had similar episodes in the past? Do they have any medical problems, any history of seizures, any substance use disorder that we know about? These can kind of clarify the etiology of the patient's presentation today. And Really, regardless, at this point, if they are such a danger to themselves or others, we're really focusing on ensuring safety for the team and the patient. Always, we always want to start with verbal de-escalation attempts, try to redirect them. Um, Gentle physical restraints can be initiated, but really, if they are posing a danger to someone, either themselves or the providers, we want to quickly realize that and use our chemical restraints and transport as quickly as possible. And I just want to jump in for a second. And sometimes these calls don't get called out as a behavioral emergency or don't get called out. So if you come on a sick person, all of a sudden they're getting very agitated, just make the plug to call for backup, call for resources, call for police presence, because these patients can get violent. And of course, the EMS crew's safety is our number one priority. Let's go to the management. Let's go through um, kind of the physical restraint and then the chemical restraint. We can pick on our toxicologist or Matt. You guys have a toxicology interest. Who wants to kick us off with the drugs? 
so I can go ahead and, and start talking about the management. Um, so our first priority is, is physically restraining the patient. This is both for their safety and the safety of everyone else at the scene. This is all, of course, assuming that your verbal de-escalation has not worked. You can uh, get PD involved if they're there and can help you out. Um, otherwise, calling for backup. Um, the most important thing is also making sure that you're not putting yourself in a dangerous situation. And once you have this person restrained, uh, the next step is to reach for chemical restraints. Um, so the EMS systems approach this pharmacological management of agitation and aggression differently. So in most EMS systems, uh, benzodiazepines like midazolam are first line, while other systems allow for the use of antipsychotics like haloperidol or dissociative agents like ketamine. Yeah, let's jump and talk about benzodiazepines, especially midazolam that's very commonly used. You know, there was a study actually recently published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2020. And this was done out of the Chicago EMS system. So this study looked at midazolam use in behavioral emergencies in almost 300 patients. The doses administered were either one milligram IV or five milligrams IM intramuscularly. And so about 93% of the patients got the five milligrams intramuscularly. And midazolam improved the patient's condition 75% of the time. They reported very infrequent adverse events. So they concluded that midazolam was a very safe and effective use, either intramuscularly or IV or intranasally. So it doesn't matter your route of choice. I was actually a little bit surprised by the dose of only one milligram IV for midazolam in this study, but it did appear to have some benefit in these patients. Let's jump to antipsychotics. Patil, our toxicologist, you want to go through these? Sure. Um, although benzodiazepines really are the mainstay for this, some antipsychotics have been studied in the pre-hospital setting. Um, there was one prospective randomized observational trial where agitated patients were administered intramuscular haloperidol or intramuscular midazolam for agitation control. And what they really looked at was average time to sedation and rate of adverse events. Uh, the time to sedation means the time it takes for you to be able to resume normal assessment and control of the patient. In the haloperidol group, the mean time to sedation was almost 25 minutes. And in the midazolam group, it was about 13 and a half minutes. And once sedated, both groups remained that way for over one hour, 84 minutes for the haloperidol group and about 105 minutes average for the midazolam group. And they had equal safety profiles. This is very indicative of a lot of studies out there, which is where, on average, the antipsychotics take a lot longer time to kick in than benzodiazepines. And I think that's why benzodiazepines have been used and are used so much more frequently in the pre-hospital setting, because you really don't want to be hanging out for 25 minutes for a very you know agitated patient to calm down. That's pretty dangerous for the crew and for the patient. And especially with our short transport times, especially in our town, you know, we'll get to a hospital within 10 to 15 minutes from the scene. It seems like they're not, they would still be then agitated and nothing's been relaxed if they'd just gone to a antipsychotic. Yeah. And that's really been a lot of the goals of looking at different sedation medications in the pre-hospital setting, which is what's going to be the fastest while also have the safest adverse event profile. And really that's why dissociative drugs like ketamine also started to be studied in this setting. Ketamine is not um, used in the Central California EMS uh, agency, but it is used in some other pre-hospital settings, especially in the aeromedical setting. Ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic, which is pretty frequently used in the hospital setting, especially in the emergency department for procedural sedations. 
Um, and now it's also being used for sedating severely agitated patients in the emergency department setting. But interestingly, this use of ketamine to sedate agitated patients in the ER started off with data from pre-hospital setting. So this is something where pre-hospital brought it into the hospital, uh, which I think is kind of cool. And um, there were a lot of case reports published where ketamine was used to sedate really delirious, agitated patients in the aeromedical setting first. Um, so it was um, patients being uh, transported by air. Um, and now a lot of studies have been done supporting its use in the pre-hospital setting. I do want to give a shout out to my friend John Cole uh, in Minnesota, who's done a lot of these studies He's really doing good work over there. Uh, almost every pre-hospital ketamine study he is an author on. But in a recent systematic review published by his group in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, they looked at 18 studies to look at safety and effectiveness of ketamine to sedate pre-hospital and ED patients with undifferentiated agitation. So that was about 650 patients. And on average, sedation was achieved in seven minutes. So that is um, pretty significantly lower number of minutes than um, either benzodiazepines or antipsychotics have shown in studies. Now, the downside is that it does seem that um, when given in pre-hospital ground units, there is a pretty significantly high rate of intubation with ketamine. Um, in this study, it was about over 30%, with air transport about 5%, and in the emergency department, only about 2%. Other side effects of ketamine included some vomiting, hypertension, emergence reactions, which is when somebody, um, instead of getting sedated, they actually freak out more and get more agitated. And that's very rare, about 3%. Um, transient hypoxia and laryngospasm. Because this was a meta-analysis combining a lot of different studies, this was all routes of ketamine. Um, and IV ketamine is known to cause um, some respiratory depression, whereas IM ketamine does not have that same effect. In the pre-hospital setting, really IM ketamine is what is being used. Now, in another study, ketamine and haloperidol were compared, and although ketamine was faster in achieving adequate sedation, it too was associated with higher intubation rate for pre-hospital ground units than haloperidol. So people have also looked at this, why so much intubation? When you look at it, it really seems that provider comfort with post-ketamine patients is key. So over time, as people have gotten more comfortable to using ketamine and seeing how quickly it works, they've gotten more comfortable with it, and the intubation rates have decreased. And a lot of these studies were done earlier on when people weren't really comfortable with ketamine yet. Uh, another thing is that they've kind of tried to tease out, well, which are the groups of people that are getting intubated more often in the pre-hospital setting? And interestingly, it looked like two variables clearly result in more intubations, male gender and late night arrivals. Um, so if it's like in the middle of the night, maybe those patients are getting intubated more often. So although ketamine has some significant advantages in that it can be given IM um, and does not affect your respiratory drive when given IM, it works really fast compared to every other agent. It doesn't really drop your blood pressure, which can happen with some of the other agents. The disadvantages include that people are a little bit more uncomfortable with using it, and so there are higher rates of uh, needing to intubate uh, patients. And very rarely you can get these emergence reactions when someone becomes even more agitated than before. And it can cause laryngospasm, which can happen with any route, IV or IM, 
and the dose doesn't matter. You just kind of never know when it's going to happen. And really it's when like your vocal cords spasm and then you can't adequately um, ventilate that patient. So they become really hard to bag. The only way to get through them is to actually give them a paralytic, paralyze them and intubate them. And so that's not something that's going to be readily available um, in the pre-hospital setting. This is all just to show you all the varieties of medications that are out there. Uh, we are going to go through our protocol now, and we use benzodiazepines here, which which it seems, you know, according to the literature right now, it probably has the best safety profile. One more caveat. Uh, watch out for hyperthermia in these uh, excited or agitated delirium or severely aggressive patients. Uh, the high fevers are what kill these people faster than anything else. If the patient feels hot, make sure you're using ice packs and cold IV fluids and make sure that the AC is turned on in the back of the rig and transport these patients quickly. Of course, address this after the patient is adequately restrained and hopefully given some calming medications. And for more information on heat-related illness, they can check out episode 10 um, in the podcast. Let's jump to our protocol. Um, we have a new protocol on behavioral emergencies as of July 2021. And prior to this protocol, medics in our system needed to call in to the base hospital to get a Versed order. So this is very exciting that now they don't have to call in. Sajin, you want to go through the protocol with us? Sure. So the first step in our protocol is to assess the scene for safety. Of course, we care about the EMS providers first and foremost, and we're going to protect yourself and others around the scene first, summon law enforcement if needed, call for backup. Once you've done that, you're going to assess the ABCs as in all patients. Secure the airway, protect with positioning, basic airway maneuvers, a pharyngeal airway if possible, or an advanced airway if indicated, and assist respirations as needed. In this severely agitated patient, typically we're going to be moving through this very quickly, very quickly assessing for other life-threatening injuries or medical conditions that may cause this behavior. We have all seen the patient who has had a significant limb injury that is acting very agitated. And so we don't want to be missing something like a large deformity that's causing their agitation and trying to sedate them instead of giving them pain medicine. Hypoxia can also cause people to be extremely agitated. So I think given the right clinical scenario, sometimes oxygen is your go-to. Right. So once we've assessed all of these things, we're going to move on to physical restraint. So prior to the use of chemical restraint, we're going to use force if necessary. Um, hopefully you have some crew and or law enforcement there to help you. Um, and it's really for the patients and everyone else's protection. We have a document in our pre-hospital care report that talks about special considerations for how and when to physically restrain somebody. Now, once they're physically restrained, we have a standing order from midazolam, and this can be given intranasally or intramuscularly. This is a four milligram maximum with a dosing regimen of 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. If administering intranasally, we want to administer half in each nostril using our mucosal atomizer device, and the patient must have stable vitals as much as you can assess, and no other injury or medical condition that may produce similar symptoms. Of course, after we give them Nazolam, we're going to quickly load these patients in the back of the rig and transport them, and you can contact the base hospital if you need any additional assistance. Okay, let's go through some take-home points. If uh, What are the key points we want everyone to remember? Matt, we'll start with you. Yeah. So I think the, the big things to remember that severe agitation and aggressive behavior are medical emergencies. Uh, these situations are often scary to come onto the scene to, 
but the patient's uh, care is also hindered by their behaviors. Um, de-escalation is always an appropriate first step, um, but oftentimes physical and chemical restraints uh, do become necessary on our mainstays of care in the field. Uh, and then finally, make sure that police is on scene or you have backup to make sure that you're safe and that the rest of the team is safe. Perfect. Sajin, what are your take on points? I'm going to say physical restraints alone may not be treating the underlying issue. So these patients can still be very sick and agitated and hurt themselves while they're in restraints. So please do use those chemical restraints. Patio. And if somebody feels really hot, once you've done your physical restraints and you've medicated them, um, try to stick some ice packs on them while you transport them, if you can. And my take-home point is that always protect yourself. Um, EMS safety is our number one priority. Do what you can to protect yourself in these scary situations. Thanks for all you do out there. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.